Book Two, Chapter Four of History of the Reformation in the Sixteenth Century, Volume One, by Jean Henri Mel d'Aubigne, translated by Henry Beveridge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. Pious men in cloisters, Staupitz, his piety, his visitation, conversation, the grace of Christ, repentance, power of sin sweetness of repentance election providence the bible the old monk the remission of sins consecration dinner the fete dieu call to wittemberg luther was not the first monk who had passed through similar struggles the cloisters often shrouded within the obscurity of their walls abominable vices at which if they had been brought to light every honest mind would have shuddered but they often also concealed christian virtues which were there unfolded in silence and which if they had been placed before the eyes of the world would have excited admiration these virtues possessed by those who lived only with themselves and with god attracted no attention and were often even unknown to the modest convent within which they were contained leading a life known to god only these humble solitaries fell occasionally into that mystical theology sad malady of noblest minds which formerly constituted the delight of the first monks on the banks of the nile and which uselessly consumes those who fall under its influence still when one of these men happened to be called to an eminent station he there displayed virtues whose salutary influence was long and widely felt the candle being placed on the candlestick gave light to all the house several were awakened by this light and hence those pious souls propagated from generation to generation kept shining like solitary torches at the very time when cloisters were often little better than impure receptacles of the deepest darkness a young man had in this way attracted notice in one of the convents of germany his name was John Staupitz, and was of a noble family in Misnia. From his earliest youth, having a taste for science and a love of virtue, he longed for retirement in order to devote himself to literature, but soon finding that philosophy and the study of nature could do little for eternal salvation, he began to study theology, making it his special object to join practice with knowledge for says one of his biographers it is vain to deck ourselves with the name of theologian if we do not prove our title to the honourable name by our life the study of the bible and of the theology of st augustine the knowledge of himself and the war which he like luther had to wage against the wiles and lusts of his heart led him to the redeemer through faith in whom he found peace to his soul the doctrine of the election of grace had in particular taken a firm hold of his mind integrity of life profound science and eloquence combined with a noble appearance and a dignified address recommended him to his contemporaries the elector of saxony frederick the wise made him his friend employed him on different embassies and under his direction founded the university of wittemberg 
This disciple of St. Paul and St. Augustine was the first dean of the faculty of theology in that school, which was one day to send forth light to enlighten the schools and churches of so many nations. He attended the Council of Lateran as deputy from the Archbishop of Salzburg, became provincial of his order in Thuringia and Saxony, and ultimately vicar-general of the Augustines all over Germany. Staupitz lamented the corruption of manners and the errors in doctrine which were laying waste the church. This is proved by his writings on the love of God, on Christian faith, on resemblance to Christ in his death, and by the testimony of Luther. But he considered the former of these evils as greatly the worse of the two. Besides, the mildness and indecision of his character, and his desire not to go beyond the sphere of action which he thought assigned to him, made him fitter to be the restorer of a convent than the reformer of the church. He could have wished to confer important stations only on distinguished men, but not finding them, he was contented to employ others. We must plough with horses, said he, if we can find them but if we have no horses, we must plough with oxen. We have seen the anguish and inward wrestlings to which Luther was a prey in the convent of Erfurt. At this time a visit from the vicar-general was announced, and Staupitz accordingly arrived to make his ordinary inspection. The friend of Frederick, the founder of the University of Wittenberg, the head of the Augustines, took a kind interest in the monks under his authority, it was not long ere one of the friars of the convent attracted his attention. This was a young man of middle stature whom study, abstinence, and vigils had so wasted away that his bones might have been counted. His eyes, which at a later period were compared to those of the falcon, were sunken, his gait was sad, and his looks bespoke a troubled soul, the victim of numerous struggles, yet still strong and bent on resisting. His whole appearance had in it something grave, melancholy, and solemn. Staupitz, whose discernment had been improved by long experience, easily discovered what was passing in the soul of the young friar, and singled him out from those around him. He felt drawn towards him, had a presentiment of his high destiny, and experienced the interest of a parent for his subaltern. He, too, had struggled like Luther, and could therefore understand his situation. Above all, he could show him the way of peace which he himself had found. The information he received of the circumstances which had brought the young Augustine to the convent increased his sympathy. He requested the prior to treat him with great mildness, and availed himself of the opportunities which his office gave him to gain the young friar's confidence. Going kindly up to him, he took every means to remove his timidity, which was moreover increased by the respect and reverence which the elevated rank of Staupitz naturally inspired. The heart of Luther, till then closed by harsh treatment, opened at last and expanded to the mild rays of charity. As in water face answereth to face, so the heart of man to man. The heart of Staupitz answered to the heart of Luther. The vicar-general understood him, and the monk in his turn felt a confidence in Staupitz which no one had hitherto inspired. 
He revealed to him the cause of his sadness, depicted the fearful thoughts which agitated him, and then, in the cloister of Erfurt, commenced a conversation full of wisdom and instruction. In vain, said Luther despondingly to Staupitz, in vain do I make promises to God, sin has always the mastery. Oh, my friend, replied the vicar-general, thinking how it had been with himself, more than a thousand times have I sworn to our holy God to live piously, and I have never done so. Now I no longer swear, for I know I should not perform. Unless God be pleased to be gracious to me for the love of Christ, and grant to me a happy departure when I leave this world, I shall not be able with all my vows and all my good works to stand before him. I must perish." The young monk is terrified at the thought of the divine justice, and lays all his fears before the vicar-general. The ineffable holiness of God and his sovereign majesty fill him with alarm. Who will be able to support the day of his advent? Who to stand when he appeareth? Stapitz resumes. He knows where he has found peace, and his young friend will hear it. Why torment thyself, said he to him, with all these speculations and high thoughts? Look to the wounds of Jesus Christ, to the blood which he has shed for thee, then thou shalt see the grace of God. Instead of making a martyr of thyself for thy faults, throw thyself into the arms of the Redeemer. Confide in him, in the righteousness of his life and the expiation of his death. Keep not back. God is not angry with thee, it is thou who art angry with God. Listen to the Son of God, who became man in order to assure thee of the divine favour. He says to thee, Thou art my sheep, thou hearest my voice, none shall pluck thee out of my hand. But Luther does not here find the repentance which he believes necessary to salvation. He replies, and it is the ordinary reply of agonized and frightened souls, How dare I believe in the favor of God while there is nothing in me like true conversion? I must be changed before he can receive me. His venerable guide shows him that there can be no true conversion while God is dreaded as a severe judge. What will you say then, exclaims Luther, of the many consciences to which a thousand unsupportable observances are prescribed as a means of gaining heaven? Then he hears this reply from the vicar-general, or rather his belief is that it comes not from man, but it is a voice sounding from heaven. No repentance, says Stapitz, is true, save that which begins with the love of God and of righteousness. What others imagine to be the end and completion of repentance is, on the contrary, only the commencement of it. To have a thorough love of goodness, thou must before all have a thorough love of God. If thou wouldst be converted, dwell not upon all these macerations and tortures. Love him who first loved thee. Luther listens, and listens again. These consoling words fill him with an unknown joy and give him new light. It is Jesus Christ, thinks he in his heart. Yes, it is Jesus Christ himself who consoles me so wonderfully by these sweet and salutary words. These words, in fact, penetrated to the inmost heart of the young monk, like the sharp arrow of a mighty man. In order to repent, it is necessary to love God. 
Illumined with this new light, he proceeds to examine the scriptures, searching out all the passages which speak of repentance and conversion. These words, till now so much dreaded, become, to use his own expressions, an agreeable sport and the most delightful recreation. All the passages of scripture which frightened him seem now to rise up from all sides, smiling and leaping and sporting with him. Hitherto, exclaims he, though I have carefully disguised the state of my heart and strove to give utterance to a love which was only constrained and fictitious, Scripture did not contain a word which seemed to me more bitter than that of repentance. Now, however, there is none sweeter and more agreeable. Oh, how pleasant the precepts of God are when we read them not only in books, but in the precious wounds of the Saviour. Meanwhile, Luther, though consoled by the words of Staupitz, was still subject to fits of depression. Sin manifested itself anew to his timorous conscience, and then the joy of salvation was succeeded by his former despair. Oh, my sin, my sin, my sin, one day exclaimed the young monk in the presence of the vicar-general, in accents of the deepest grief. Ah, replied he, would you only be a sinner on canvas, and also have a saviour only on canvas? Then Staupitz gravely added, Know that Jesus Christ is the saviour even of those who are great real sinners and every way deserving of condemnation. What agitated Luther was not merely the sin which he felt in his heart. The upbraidings of his conscience were confirmed by arguments drawn from reason. If the holy precepts of the Bible frightened him, some of its doctrines likewise increased his terror. Truth, which is the great means by which God gives peace to man, must necessarily begin by removing the false security which destroys him. The doctrine of election, in particular, disturbed the young man, and threw him into a field which it is difficult to traverse. Must he believe that it was man who, on his part, first chose God, or that it was God who first chose man. The Bible, history, daily experience, and the writings of Augustine had shown him that always and in everything, in looking for a first cause, it was necessary to ascend to the sovereign will by which everything exists and on which everything depends. But his ardent spirit would have gone farther. He would have penetrated into the secret counsel of God, unveiled its mysteries, seen the invisible, and comprehended the incomprehensible. Staupitz interfered, telling him not to pretend to fathom the hidden purposes of God, but to confine himself to those of them which have been made manifest in Christ. Look to the wounds of Christ, said he to him, and there see a bright display of the purposes of God towards man. It is impossible to comprehend God outside of Jesus Christ. In Christ you will find what I am, and what I require, saith the Lord. You can find him nowhere else, either in heaven or on the earth. The vicar-general went farther. He convinced Luther of the paternal designs of providence in permitting the various temptations and combats which the soul has to sustain. He exhibited them to him in a light well fitted to revive his courage. By such trials God prepares those whom he destines for some important work. The ship must be proved before it is launched on the boundless deep. 
If this education is necessary for every man, it is so particularly for those who are to have an influence on their generation. This Starpitz represented to the monk of Erfurt. It is not without cause, said he to him, that God exercises you by so many combats. Be assured, he will employ you in great things as his minister. These words, which Luther hears with astonishment and humility, fill him with courage and give him a consciousness of powers whose existence he had not even suspected. The wisdom and prudence of an enlightened friend gradually revealed the strong man to himself. Nor does Staupitz rest here. He gives him valuable directions as to his studies, exhorting him in future to lay aside the systems of the school and draw all his theology from the Bible. Let the study of the scriptures, said he, be your favorite occupation. Never was good advice better followed. But what, above all, delighted Luther was the present of a Bible from Staupitz. Perhaps it was the Latin Bible bound in red leather which belonged to the convent and which it was the summit of his desire to possess that he might be able to carry it about with him wherever he went, because all its leaves were familiar to him, and he knew where to look for every passage. At length this treasure is his own. From that time he studies the scriptures, and especially the epistles of St. Paul, with always increasing zeal. The only author whom he admits along with the Bible is St. Augustine. Whatever he reads is deeply imprinted on his soul, for his struggles had prepared him for comprehending it. The soil had been ploughed deep, and the incorruptible seed penetrates far into it. When Staupitz left Erfurt, a new day had dawned upon Luther. Nevertheless, the work was not finished. The vicar-general had prepared it, but its completion was reserved for a humbler instrument. The conscience of the young Augustine had not yet found repose, and, owing to his efforts and the stretch on which his soul had been kept, his body at length gave way. He was attacked by an illness which brought him to the gates of death. This was in the second year of his residence in the convent. All his agonies and terrors were awakened at the approach of death. His own pollution and the holiness of God anew distracted his soul. One day, when overwhelmed with despair, an old monk entered his cell and addressed him in consoling terms. Luther opened his heart to him and made him aware of the fears by which he was agitated. The respectable old man was incapable of following him into all his doubts as Staupitz had done, but he knew his credo, and having found in it the means of consoling his own heart, he could apply the same remedy to the young friar. Leading him back to the Apostles' Creed, which Luther had learned in the infancy at the school of Mansfeld, the old monk good-naturedly repeated the article, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. These simple words, which the pious friar calmly repeated at this decisive moment, poured great consolation into the soul of Luther. I believe, oft repeated he to himself on his sickbed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Ah, said the monk, the thing to be believed in is not merely that David's or Peter's sins are forgiven, this the devils believe. God's command is to believe that our own sins are forgiven. How delightful this command appeared to poor Luther. 
See what St. Bernard says in his sermon on the Annunciation, added the old friar. The witness which the Holy Spirit witnesseth with our spirit is, Thy sins are forgiven thee. From this moment light sprung up in the heart of the young monk of Erfurt. The gracious word has been pronounced, and he believes it. He renounces the idea of meriting salvation, and puts implicit confidence in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He does not see all the consequences of the principle which he has admitted. He is still sincere in his attachment to the church, and yet he has no longer need of her. He has received salvation immediately from God himself, and from that moment Roman Catholicism is virtually destroyed in him. He goes forward and searches the writings of the apostles and prophets for everything that may strengthen the hope which fills his heart. Each day he invokes help from above, and each day also the light increases in his soul. The health which his spirit had found soon restores health to his body, and he rises from his sickbed after having, in a double sense, received a new life. During the Feast of Noel, which arrived shortly after, he tasted abundantly of all the consolations of faith. With sweet emotion he took part in the holy solemnities, and when, in the middle of the gorgeous service of the day, he came to chant these words, O Beata Culpa, Quoe Talem Meruisti Redemptorem, O blessed fault to merit such a Redeemer, his whole being said Amen, and thrilled with joy. Luther had been two years in the cloister, and must now be consecrated priest. He had received much, and he looked forward with delight to the prospect which the priesthood presented of enabling him freely to give what he had freely received. Wishing to avail himself of the occasion to be fully reconciled to his father, he invited him to be present, and even asked him to fix the day. John Luther, though not yet entirely appeased, nevertheless accepted the invitation, and named Sabbath the 2nd of May, 1507. In the list of Luther's friends was the vicar of Isenach, John Braun, who had been his faithful adviser when he resided in that town. Luther wrote to him on the 22nd of April. It is the reformer's earliest letter, and bears the following address. To John Braun, holy and venerable priest of Christ and Mary. It is only in the two first letters of Luther that the name of Mary occurs. God, who is glorious and holy in all his works, says the candidate for the priesthood, having designed to exalt me exceedingly, me a miserable and every way unworthy sinner, and to call me solely out of his abundant mercy to his sublime ministry, it is my duty in order to testify my gratitude for a goodness so divine and so magnificent, as far at least as dust can do it, to fulfill with my whole heart the office which is entrusted to me. At length the day arrived. The miner of Mansfeld failed not to be present at the consecration of his son. He even gave him an unequivocal mark of his affection and generosity by making him a present of twenty florins on the occasion. The ceremony took place, Jerome, Bishop of Brandenburg, officiating. At the moment of conferring on Luther the right to celebrate Mass, he put the chalice into his hand, uttering these solemn words, Acipe potestatum sacrificandi pro vivis et mortuis. 
receive power to sacrifice for the living and the dead. Luther then listened complacently to these words, which gave him the power of doing the very work appropriated to the Son of God, but they afterwards made him shudder. That the earth did not swallow us both, said he, was more than we deserved, and was owing to the great patience and long-suffering of the Lord. The father afterwards dined at the convent with his son, the friends of the young priest and the monks. The conversation turned on Martin's entrance into the cloister, the friars loudly extolling it as one of the most meritorious of works. Then the inflexible John, turning towards his son, said to him, Hast thou not read in Scripture to obey thy father and thy mother? These words struck Luther. They gave him quite a different view of the action which had brought him into the convent, and for a long time continued to echo in his heart. By the advice of Staupitz, Luther, shortly after his ordination, made short excursions on foot into the neighbouring parishes and convents, both for relaxation, to give his body the necessary exercise, and to accustom himself to preaching. The fete Dieu was to be celebrated with splendour at Eisleben, where the vicar-general was to be present. Luther repaired thither. He had still need of Staupitz, and missed no opportunity of meeting with this enlightened conductor who was guiding him into the way of life. The procession was numerous and brilliant. Staupitz himself carried the holy sacrament, and Luther followed in his sacerdotal dress. The thought that it was truly Jesus Christ that the vicar-general was carrying, the idea that Christ was there in person actually before him, suddenly struck Luther's imagination, and filled him with such amazement that he could scarcely move forward. The perspiration fell from him in drops. He shook, and thought he would have died with agony and terror. At length the procession ceased. This host, which had so awakened the fears of the monk, was solemnly deposited in the sanctuary, and Luther, as soon as he was alone with Staupitz, threw himself into his arms and told him of his consternation. Then the worthy vicar-general, who had long known that Saviour who breaketh not the bruised reed, said to him mildly, It was not Jesus Christ, my brother. Jesus Christ does not alarm. He consoles merely. Luther was not to remain hid in an obscure convent. The time had arrived for his being transported to a larger theatre. Staupitz, with whom he was in constant correspondence, was well aware that the soul of the young monk was too active to be confined within so narrow a circle. He mentioned him to Frederick of Saxony, and this enlightened prince, in 1508, probably towards the close of that year, invited him to a chair in the University of Wittenberg. Wittenberg was a field on which he was to fight hard battles, and Luther felt that his vocation was there. Being required to repair promptly to his new post, he answered the appeal without delay, and in the hurry of his removal had not even time to write him whom he called his master and beloved father, John Braun, curate of Isenach. Some months after, he wrote, My departure was so sudden that those I was living with scarcely knew of it. I am far away, I confess, but the better part of me is still with you. Luther had been three years in the cloister of Erfurt. End of Book 2, Chapter 4